Hidden gems. Hidden gems. Hidden gems. Hidden gems. Well, bless your ears, baby. I listen to hidden gems every night before I go to bed. I listen to hidden gems in the kitchen. Hidden gems. Today, we're joined on the podcast by Booker Woodfox, a former pro skills trainer he leads his own academy and uh he's currently working for the mavs organization and we're happy to have you what's up book what's going on how y'all doing doing good doing well so booker just give us uh just tell us about your journey coming from Louisville, texas and how your love for the game started well, I started playing basketball around the age of six. Now, I didn't start getting competitive till about, you know, 11 or 12. But, you know, I always used to shoot in the outside, whether that be the rec center, wherever I find a goal. I used to always just get my basketball in. And by the time I got to be about 12 is when I started to love the game, started competing, working out, training myself, and just enjoyed it. You know, and it, and it got me this far, so can't complain there. For sure. So tell us about coming out of high school, where were you at as far as other guys in the country? And then tell us about how you got started going to wherever you went, wherever you attended school after high school, and then how that got you to, to Creighton. Well, coming out of, you know, in high school, I was, I was amongst the other kids in the DFW, you know, supposedly pretty good. But I mean, um, I, I got to play in a lot of stuff in high school. I always was like the guy that that snuck in. Like, right. you know, hey, we have a space open. You was one we was thinking about. So somebody dropped out. Can you go? So, but I got to do, I got to do a lot of that. I got to, in high school, I got to play for the, the USA team with players like Gerald Green. Nice. So many. I played, I mean, it was it was a bunch of guys. You know, playing with that USA team, I was the only junior college signee that played. Everybody else went pro or went to, you know, high-level D1. So that's, a, that, I just, I snuck in. And then I also got to go to the Nike camp, which you have to be top 150 to get in there. But I wasn't top 150 at the time, but I still happened to, slide right in and, and make a mark for myself there and that was sure. and at that camp nobody knew who I was I, I was <laughs> I was a I was a replacement so I get in there and I you know I make a little name for myself with players from the 2005 class like Lou Williams Tyler Hansborough Monte Ellis just I mean all kinds of guys from 2005 that ended up going to the NBA in 2006 so I, I just, from then on, I learned, like, I got to get with it. Some of these guys are real good. And if I want to have a chance to play college basketball, I'm going to have to buckle down because these guys are really, really good back then. Had to find a way. And, and you're, a, you're an <laughs> undersized guard. And so how did that mindset motivate you knowing that you're undersized compared to a lot of guys playing at that level? How did that really trigger to you? How, how did that motivate you to want to keep driving and compete with those guys and prove yourself that you can play at that level? Well, one thing I've always been good at is able to score the basketball. So my defense might have not been the best, but you got to play me because I'm going to get you a basket. But my the size and all oh, that really didn't matter. I was athletic for my you know, for my generation. So I was able to get some things done. I just I just knew what I had to do. Yeah, you know, right. I Dale Harris always told me and he kept it he kept it real with me. He's like, Hey, the reason you're still playing and the reason you're still a pro is cause you can shoot the basketball. Right. So with that being said, that's why I got the 
had the career that I had. Nice. Tell us a little bit about your Creighton days. Your coach, was Dana your coach at the time? Yeah, Dana Allman. Yeah, so tell us, tell us a little bit about Dana and your your time at Creighton uh, and how he helped and how that university helped you get to the pro level. Well, I, I had to go through JUCO first. Right. You know, the, the JUCO life is totally different and people wouldn't even believe what goes on and what you got to go through in JUCO. So it was an easy transition going to, to Creighton where you, you're like a king. So, I mean... <laughs> it was it was definitely a great experience, and then I I had the best coach, you know, and like you said, Dana Altman, who helped me become a really really good basketball player. You know, he showed me, you know, just by practicing or having individual workouts or going to his office and talking to him or whatever the case may be, he helped me be a really good basketball player for Creighton Blue Jays. Cool. So like, you make it out of Creighton, and where do you where did you go from there? Yeah, so I got out of Creighton. I ended up, well, my, my junior year, I got sixth man of the year. And then my senior year, that's when I got MVP of the conference. So then I, I started having agents call me and saying, hey, do you want to still play? And that and that answer was yes. So once they started calling me up and saying that they can help me get to the NBA or they can help me get overseas or to the G League, I was all ears. And uh, But it took a while. I, I mean, I didn't go straight to the G League. I had to go overseas first. I went to Lebanon, and, you know, that was an experience there all itself. That's where I ended up going first before I went to the Texas Legends. They drafted me. I came through an open tryout, you know, which was very, very tough because you got 100 guys there trying to get drafted or trying to, you know, show what they can do so they can play in the G League. But um, everything went good, you know, got to play some about eight years of pro basketball. Book, during your time at Creighton and even in JUCO, and this could even go back to high school, what what would you say that you did just like through your training and whatnot that set you apart and separated you as a player? Well, we didn't have social media, so I was always outside, and I was always playing basketball, and I was always at the rec centers, or I was always at any any place that had a gym, I was there. And uh, and I would I would stay there all day. I would get dropped off at the wreck and go from 9 a.m. till when they closed, which is like 9 p.m. in the summertime. So I was I was always just trying to play basketball. I feel like that's one thing we've heard over and over again on the podcast. It's like these successful guys they live and breathe basketball. Like there's a trend with it. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And plus, you can you learn so much from the game of basketball. You meet a lot of people. You can help influence kids on what to do, what not to do. If they look up to you, then, you know, they'll listen. So, I mean, if basketball ball can change lives. For sure. And I think that's a lot, We just like Justin said, about as we're hearing a lot on the podcast is our sport is so influential throughout. It's a And it's a global sport. And so it's so influential throughout the world. And we're able to touch people and reach people and motivate and inspire a lot of different demographics because of our game itself and what it brings and it's taken a lot of people a lot of different places as you know it took it's it's taken me this far and to australia and to all these other places and justin can say the same it's taking him all over the world just because of the game and how it's moving and how it's progressing and so it's a it's a blessing to be able to play our sport and enjoy it and let us you know reach new experiences that maybe without the sport we wouldn't have we wouldn't have reached and 
you can probably attest to this coming from Louisville. We're not, you know, maybe you wouldn't get to where you are if the game of basketball wasn't brought into your life and, and if you didn't pursue that. Me and, me and my boys, we talk about that all the time. Like, what would we be doing if we wasn't playing basketball? And I don't know. I don't know how many. I couldn't even tell you. I don't know what I'd be doing right now. I mean, I, obviously, because I did play, you know, I was able to transition to other things as far as starting a basketball academy. But, again, that's with basketball. So yeah. if I didn't have basketball, I really don't know where I'd be at. Right. That's another trend that we've gotten over and over again is where the game can take you outside of playing because there's so many avenues that you can make a difference in basketball even if you're not the one on the court no you're right Um, you're absolutely right we just did a overseas special last episode um and we'd love to hear a little more about your experience overseas and the challenges and struggles that you face because like we said on the last episode everybody wants to i want to play overseas i want to do this but they don't think about all that that entails everything that comes with it yeah, they have no idea. Overseas is tough. First of all, you gotta you gotta fly about seventeen to twenty hours, maybe some shorter, but over the water. That's number one. Number two, you gotta lose not lose, but you gotta leave your family, and then you're going somewhere where you don't know anything, you don't know anybody, you don't know how to speak the language, but you gotta be a man, and you gotta you gotta make things work. My first year in Lebanon was was straight out of college. So I, I have never even been a I've never been overseas or nothing, and I went straight to Lebanon, and they was at war with Israel over water wow. and over oil. So I'm right in the thick of things there, where you got to have a checkpoint every certain miles. You got guys walking around with with the biggest guns you can even think of. So, oh, but then you got to go play. You know, you you got to play. That's what they're there to do. They're paying you all this money to play basketball. So you're supposed to just be worried about basketball. And really, that's not that's not easy. Yeah, we talked about the mental struggles of playing overseas. And a lot of guys thought they were even harder than the physical things you go through because it's just basketball, basketball. But you don't have a family there. You don't have the same communication, same food. Yeah, um, it's it's a big transition. It is like you got what you just said. You gotta, you gotta get used to the food. You gotta get used to the different to changes in hours. You gotta sleep there. That's your home. Right. And when you're there for more than five or six months, it can it can be a toll on you. It can be a toll on you. Crazy thing is, like when they hire you, when they sign you, they expect you to be able to make the adjustment. You know. Yeah. And they and they tell you, and they understand your situation and in your environment where you're playing at. But at the end of the day, like you said, they're playing, they're paying you to play the game, to play basketball. So they care more about you producing than they really care about, you know, you worried about not getting enough sleep or the gunshots you hear from miles away and things like that. And so just like in our last episode, we were talking about, you know, how mentally you have to really lock in and be mentally tough because it will test you overseas. I know one thing is you you grow up quick. You know, I was 23 when I went or 22 or 23 when I went to Lebanon, so I had to I had to figure things out like in a hurry or it wouldn't it wouldn't be good. So, but once you once you're there and you get on that court, things change. Your whole mindset changes. Uh, like out, outside the court, you might be a little distressed. I don't know, whatever but when you get on that court or you're in practice, all of that goes away and you're just and you're there and it reminds you, hey, look, I'm here to play basketball. 
and that's what I signed up to do. Cool. So tell us uh, quickly about like what's one of your finest moments, like a moment you really felt good about and you were um, satisfied with while playing overseas. One of the good moments was probably playing in Colombia. We went to, we didn't win the championship, but we got to the to game three, which is they play the best of three. And we ended up losing, but that experience in Colombia was good because you get to see people, you know, struggling, and you can help them. And you know you can help them because when you're getting paid money out there, you can help them. So, they, you know, that was a good feeling. Getting to the championship, even though we lost playing with those guys, you know, it was it was a good, it was good camaraderie. Everybody got along. There really wasn't, you know, no tension in the locker rooms. Everybody was friendly. So sure. that was one of my – my favorite places to play and one of my favorite moments was playing with those guys in Colombia. Did you ever have any overseas experiences where you, there was tension in the locker room and it was kind of a harder team dynamic? Yeah, um, yeah, that's everywhere. That's, that's that's been on plenty of teams that I've played on. But um, overseas, I, I've, I've been on, I was on a couple teams where you had you know do locker room stuff, but. Not, not. It was. It wasn't too bad, you know. It's. It's every, every locker room has. You rarely get a locker room with the one I just told you about, where everything's, you know, going good. But right. As far as that goes, you know, it's you got good locker rooms, you got bad locker rooms, but it all starts in the locker room. That's for sure. If you like each other, you spot on with that one. Makes all the difference. Let's talk about your G League, D League experience, and so. Let's talk about, you know, the Texas Legends and how they helped you in your career and things and things like that. And just like the G League experience as a whole. Yeah. The Texas Legends, you know, obviously we're still we still work together today, but they helped me right. drastically. They didn't have to draft me. Um, I was a local kid, so they they were like, Hey, let's give this guy a chance, see if he can play. He just got out of he was out of Creighton, he was MVP, he was sixth man of the year, let's give him a chance. And when I got drafted, I think it was third round. I think there's ten rounds but uh I got drafted in the third round. I went to training camp and I went into the office with Donnie Nelson, Spud Webb, Malcolm Farmer, a few other guys there. And uh, they asked me, they like, do you think you deserve to be on this team? And I looked at them, and I was, I didn't know if that was a trick question. Yeah. I didn't know what was going on. But I said, um, yeah. And they just said, hey, well, you're on it. And from then on, my career took off. That year, I won a three-point contest twice, actually. One in South Padre Island, and then the the G League three-point contest. And I got to go to All-Star Weekend, which that one was in L.A. They put you up in a nice hotel. You get to go to sporting events. I was everywhere. Got to meet some of the NBA players. Got to do NBA cares with all of the NBA players, WNBA players. So you got to meet a lot of people just from going to All-Star Weekend and being involved in the festivities that they have. So it was it was experience. And I got to do that three times. Nice. You know, I did it. I won two in Orlando and in L.A., and I got to go to another one in in New Orleans. But those experiences was really good. Nice. We were were watching some footage on you yesterday. And you was doing what now? We we was watching some footage of the baggy short, long short Booker Woodfox with the. the, I don't I don't know what that was about. I get 
the kids that I train at my academy, they Google me and they look up those pictures and they see how big my shorts was, how big my, I don't, I do not know what that was about. I look ridiculous. I know that. <laughs> and so I think Justin will probably appreciate this more than I will. Tell us about why and how you developed your jump shot and the elevation you get on it. And then tell us about uh, how your free throw r- routine came about. Well, number one, I'm six one. I'm going against guys that are on the wing at six four, six five, six six, six seven. And if I have, and if I want any chance of getting my jump shot off, then I gotta explode up, you know. And I was, I remember in eighth grade, I was playing against this other kid who ended up going to high school together, but his name was Aubrey, Aubrey Brown. And I was in eighth grade, and I, and I got a steal. And then uh, kind of set, tried to set up the offense, and then I went for a jump shot. And I shot, and I used to shoot it like standing down, standing still, or jump a little bit and start from my stomach and roll it up. And when I did that, he he blocked me so hard, he knocked my thumb out of place. And I was like, I got to be able to get my shot off, because he didn't just do it once that game. He did it like four times, and I never had that happen to me. So right. and my dad was like, well, hey, man. You need to start jumping on your jump shot. And then that was all she wrote. My freshman year, I tried to dunk every jump or I shot. <laughs> every jump I took, I tried to dunk. Nice. Tell us about this fruit throw routine you got going. That started in eighth grade, too. I don't bend my knees when I shoot free throws. I don't. I use all arms. You know, they say you need to bend your knees when you're shooting free throws. I don't believe that. Because when you bend your knees, you end up shooting it too hard. You bend your knees when you shoot a jump shot. A free throw line is you're just supposed to, you know, you know your own strength. You're just supposed to shoot it. You don't have to bend your knees. And so I bend my knees before to get the, the mental part right. I always felt like that was just, you know, a weird dynamic of how you start inside the key. And then, you know, you take that lunge and it's all arms. But you shot a very high percentage from the free throw line and three point line for that matter. So yes, I had to get the job done. Did you ever go through any memorable shooting slumps through your playing career? Yeah, it all, and it always came around the same year, I felt like. You know, uh, especially in high school. It was always, I don't know if it was the fatigue of playing the games, but it would always be maybe about 15, 20 games in. I would go through stretches where I'd be like 0 for 7 from 3, you know, 5 of five or 15 from the field. I ain't never, and I ain't never shot like that. I was always consistent and always would shoot 45 to 50% from three right. and from the field. But it, it came, it did. It came around the same year, around the same time every year. It, it stopped once I got to Creighton. I don't know if that's because I got stronger, but I really, I don't even remember having any shooting slumps per se after Creighton. I, I mean, obviously I would have a game or two where I'd miss shots or a lot of them. But then I'd go right back to normal, you know? Right. And as a pro, I feel like you get more accustomed and know what to adjust in those situations and how to get through the middle block especially more than you would as a high schooler. What would you do in those instances to try to kind of get past that, either mentally or physically or in the gym? In high school? Uh, just throughout your career. I know you had them more in high school. I would just go to the gym. It's, it's always something small. And when you're a shooter, you can figure it out like the same day right. or after the game. You can figure it out. Oh, man, I, was, I wasn't I was holding my follow-through. Or, oh, okay. Every time I shot it, my, my uh, follow-through was below my face. It wasn't over my head. Or every time I shot it, my hand drifted to the right. 
or every time I shot it, I was rushing it. You know, you can, and then boom, you you good to go. If you know how to shoot, like you ain't never seen or heard of Clay or or Kyle or Steph just having bad game after bad game. It ain't ha- that ain't happening. They're gonna figure it out because they're shooters. Right, and as a shooter, like if they miss like five in a row, they think, okay, great, I'm gonna make my next five in a row. So it's gonna even out eventually. If you're a good yeah, that's, shooter, that's, that's how you have to think when you're a shooter. I would make if I shot my first shot and it lo- and it didn't feel right and it went in, that would bug me. Like it would bug me. And right. if I shot my next one and it, and it didn't feel right or I, it didn't come off my hands and it just and I made it, it was it was basically over for that day because I wasn't going to hit nothing else because it didn't feel right. Right now, that's happened to me plenty of times. Or I. Or I'd make a free throw, and then was just like, what? Whoa, that ain't me. Yeah. And then I'd probably end up, you know, missing a few shots because it's, if the shot didn't feel right. So I hated that whenever I'd make a shot and it didn't feel like it was me shooting it. Right, because then you're not trusting yourself. We're going to start to wrap up, but I really want to, we, we really want to talk about, tell us a little bit about this academy. Tell us about your academy uh, <laughs> in Louisville and the mission behind it and what do you expect to get out of it where where the idea came from just tell us about it well I started the academy what was that last year I was done playing and I needed to figure something out and you know and I was just like well I know a bunch of people that have gyms I can the gym the gym access is easy for me and so I came across the gym in Louisville where I'm from and and it's a private gym you know it's brand new it's perfect. You know, we have a stage on, in the gym. We have classrooms, locker rooms, full court. We got one full court with three goals. And and I, when I started the academy, I was like, hey, you know what? I can just start training kids and just call it my my basketball academy. And started off slow, like all businesses do. But now we're at about 50 members and got some of the top kids in the state and in the country that uh, come to the academy. That's and awesome. We go to work in there. We, we got an athletic trainer. We got a yoga teacher once the season gets closer. And we got kids from grades fifth through high school, you know, and, and the word spreading quick. That's awesome. And as a trainer, you know, Different guys have different formats and, you know, techniques of training and ideals that they go by. What would you say you kind of emphasize as a trainer or what is kind of the process that you approach training from? You know, do you really do a lot of shooting or is it, you know, very condition oriented or? Well, we do everything. You know, the kids can come like five times a week. So we do game situations on how, how to score, how to dribble. Right. How to get your teammates involved, how to pass, how to create your own shot. Right, and I you think know. that's one thing a lot of trainers miss is they just try to focus on this little individual skill, but then most of these kids can't translate it to a game. So that's it's good to hear a trainer talking about how they apply these skills to a game and help kids you know, learn how to actually use them. But, see, it's easy when you've played for – some of the best coaches in the, in the world. You right, know, playing, it just comes natural. Absolutely. Playing for Dana Altman, I learned something from him. Playing from Scott Janander in my JUCO, I learned something from him. Playing for Dale Harris, I learned, playing for Nancy Lieberman, playing for Nick Van Exel. You're going to pick up stuff. You know, you're going to pick up all kinds of things that you can teach, you know, the youth. Yeah, that's really cool. Describe your your role as a 
color commentator for the legends. What's your setup, your game prep, how you approach the position? And um, then kind of the impact, you know, that working for the Mavs has made for you and life after playing. Yeah, well, you know, it's the the TV broadcasting is it's different. I was supposed to do it last year. Well, the year before last, I just I don't think I was I, didn't, I wasn't ready for it. I didn't know. I didn't even know if I wanted to do it. And I, you know, and I was, I was like, well, I told the GM, I was just like, well, you know, I don't think I'm gonna be able to do it this year. Then the next year came and he hit me, hit me up again. Hey, do you want to do some games? So I was like, you know what, I'll go ahead and do it. And I did about nine to ten games somewhere around there. The first game was the, was the toughest one because you, you do your homework. You obviously do your homework on who's playing and some of the players. You know, so I knew about the player. The thing is, you got to be on your P's and Q's. Right. The first game, I do the TV broadcasting with Jared Sandler. He does the Rangers games, and he's with 105.3 The Fan. Cool. So I do, I do games. He's my guy. He's my play-by-play. So he makes me real comfortable. You know, he, he makes it easy for you. He's not going to put you on the spot or, you know, any of that, especially your first game. My first game, I think I winged it. I don't even know. It was it was tough, but um, I got through it, and the second game became easier. And then towards the end, me and Jared are just, we're going. You know, we got it We got it under control, and we're, and we're moving right down the line. Develop that chemistry. Absolutely. All right, so we're going we're gonna to finish up with a speed round. All right, off the top. As fast as you can. We're just going to ring off questions. What? Speed round. Here we go. Who's your favorite player in the league? LeBron James. Who would you say you modeled your game after when you played? George Gervin. Favorite food? Pizza. Pet peeve? Holding the door for old women. <laughs> <laughs> Why is that? Because that's, that's my soft spot. Old <laughs> Elderly women, man, they can't they can't do much. You gotta help them. That irks me when that people just don't do when they don't. Oh, help oh, them out. when people when people don't hold the door for old women. Okay. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. All right, we follow you. Oh wait, wait. You thought I'm. Yeah, yeah we, we thought you did. You don't you don't like holding the door for old um, women. All right, ready. Favorite city yep. in the world. Louisville, Texas. Favorite city overseas that you've been. Bogota. Okay. The best shooter to come out of Creighton, Doug McDermott, Kyle Corver, or Booker Wolf Fox? Ooh. You, you, you're just, just going to leave out Nate Funk? Uh, or Nate Funk. What about, you can't, you wait, wait, wait now. You can't, <laughs> leave out Anthony, you can't leave out Anthony Tolliver either. He's a oh, sniper. I forgot about AT. Yeah, Ouch. yeah, yeah, my bad. That's tough. So if we, wait though, it depends. If we had to shoot, have a shooting contest? Yes, straight up 10, I mean five spots. Five shots each spot. Five shots a spot. I'm going 24 for sure. Really? So, but but Doug and uh and Kyle probably going 24 also. And them boys, I don't know. Everybody, everybody's. All right. So game game. shooting. I, I got to see Kyle. I got to see Doug shoot the ball. Those boys don't miss, man. Like I don't think y'all understand. I got to see Doug when I had left Creighton. I, I got to watch a workout with him, and I don't think he missed a shot. Kyle came to practice a couple times. And we were shooting, and oh man, like it's crazy. I think that's one thing that I realized. I was out in LA. There's NBA players that are like making most of their shots, and it's just unbelievable to watch. But then Ryan Anderson came in the gym, and he like literally didn't miss. So it's crazy the fine line between great shooters and like elite shooters, like the fact that they literally do not miss. 
it's you know what I was telling some somebody the other day like it's crazy how like we I'll do a workout whenever I was whenever I was playing me and a couple of other pros we would do a, it might be two or three of us we would do a workout and literally go an hour and a half and probably miss about ten shots whenever and it's different whenever you're training you know the youth or you're training somebody who wants to be a pro and they're and you know and it's a rebounding drill. Like right. it's right. It's, they they think they can shoot, but they haven't seen how serious it can get. No, I don't yeah, that's the thing. I don't think they understand that. Who would you say so going back to those rankings or who's the top shooter, what about in a game scenario? Does that change it for you? No, because we've all hit big shots. If you go look if you go look at the at the YouTube, the old YouTube's from Kyle, from me, from Doug. Like everybody, we hitting big shots with the game on the line, game winners. So that's that's if you know you can shoot or not. If you obviously you can hit threes or hit jump shots when it's five five, but what about when there's two three seconds left and the coach is running the play for you? So I don't know because they all I don't know everybody I don't know. That's interesting though. Good good insight. I like that. What's the best new podcast out there right now? Hidden gems. Hidden gems. Appreciate you. It was a pleasure having you on, Book. Yes, sir. Appreciate you guys.